Drive into left center, and what a play made by the rookie Brian O'Grady. Pitch. Oh, into right field. Brian O'Grady, first big league home run. Fly ball, center field struck well. Marisnik going back at the wall. Gone! Welcome back, Brian O'Grady. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 48 of Breaking Bats, presented to you by Not For Long Media. I am your host, Brian O'Grady, and with me, as always, my co-host, J.A., Justin Ayers. Start by apologizing again because I'm on the phone again because my laptop just did not want to cooperate, and J.A. spent 45 minutes on FaceTime with me trying to walk me through every step possible to get it to work and still didn't, so... I'm obviously not very good at it, but anyway, Jay, what's going on? I'm you picked out the number guy today, and it's a great one. So you can tell them what number episode it is. In in honor of number forty eight, episode number forty eight, uh, this episode it's the Tory Hunter episode of Breaking Bats. That's again, shout out Baseball Reference. A fun little thing, fun little game for baseball nerds. If you want to just type in like Baseball Reference and then a jersey number, it's so cool the way they list it out. But yeah, Torrey Hunter was so cool to watch growing up. The guy flew around there in the outfield. I met was it the 2013 when Big Poppy hit the grand slam in the playoffs when he was at Detroit and flipped over the fence, got the cop with his arms up. He got Torrey with his legs up. Um, and then also I forgot about this, but in 04, remember when he robbed Barry Bonds at the All-Star game? I do remember that. Yep. Did he pick him up on the way yeah. in or something? Yeah, he uh, as he was jogging back to the dugout or whatever, Barry just threw him over his shoulder. <laughs> Great career. Love that. Great career. To Great player. Great, Great player. career. Yeah. 19 years in the bigs played with trout there for a little bit in LA too. So um, yeah, that's, that's our, that's our number 48. We wanted to go, you know, with an actually good player this week, as opposed to some of the ones that I picked just because they play for the nationals. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's all, you know what? Also, Brian, this is it. This is like officially like the Christmas episode. If you think about it, cause we're taking oh, yeah. this the 20th coming out the 21st. You know, Christmas is coming, so the season of giving is upon us. So, um, yeah, we're, we're just trying. To, we we should have been more festive. That's that's our fault. We should have. Yeah, that's all me. Did you get your Christmas shopping done? I did. Ninety five percent of it through Amazon. So shout out Bezos, um, coming in clutch. I feel like most people, but I feel like most people are gravitating towards mostly online shopping. Um, and then you just there's always that frantic last minute, like in person, like shit. All right, I need like three things for like my mom. So. Um, still did a little of that. I think that's that's almost unavoidable. But yeah, I was pretty good this year. I went straight online. I'm all done. Been done. Can't wait. Uh, nothing but coal for my wife and daughter. So we'll see how that turns out. And how old's your daughter? I mean, she's anything you get her is going to be that's an interesting seven and a half months. Yeah. So yeah. Like, my wife got her, you know, some stuff. But hopefully, uh, next year will be the start of you know the the fun the fun years where she's, yeah. she's getting more. I'm looking forward to that for sure. It's the best. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's cool. Cause I have, I have a college kid schedule again, working for a college. So I get, I get like a winter break. I'm just gonna, I, I'm going to do like traditional college kid, um, you know, things during winter break. I'm just gonna play like call of duty and just, you know, just not move for week, week at a time. So looking forward to it. That sounds like a great time. I'm jealous. Good for you. Enjoy it. <laughs> It's the best. 
Uh, so yeah, we, we definitely should have, we should have spruced up the backgrounds or something for, for Christmas here, but, um, you know, we'll talk about, we'll talk about some of the, the free agency stuff going on here around the league. We have a great interview coming up with Thomas Eshelman, um, formerly of the Orioles now coach for the Padres system. But, uh, before we get to all the fun stuff, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Psalm sleep. Are you like Brian and you can't really sleep well at night because Psalm sleep has you covered. Uh, the scientifically advanced Psalm snack has ingredients that are naturally found in your body, like GABA, magnesium, and melatonin. Sleep is the best form of recovery, and it's helped people everywhere take their game to the next level. All you have to do is drink one serving 30 minutes before you go to bed, and your body will naturally calm itself down. Wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer your day. You're going to want to go to getsom.com, click shop, and enter the code BATS, B-A-T-S, at checkout for 10% off of your entire order. All right, uh, a lot of big free agency news since the last time we talked. Um, we'll start with Carlos Rodon and the Yankees six years, $162 million contract. If you look at like this guy's baseball reference page and you just kind of see like his career arc and career journey, it's been super interesting, like for high round pick out of NC state, you know, missed most of 19 and 20 due to an injury, um, roughly league average before that, like high three, low four ERA. And then just in the last two seasons, he's turned it on where he's like back to back over five war a year, Chicago and San Fran, like. Do you think that this is the Carlos Rodon that we can expect? I don't want to say for the entire duration because six years is a long time, but um, you know, what do you, what do you like about the the Rodon to the Yankees contract here? Yeah, it's definitely seems like he's he's figured something out. Obviously, the the talent has been there forever. Um, good for him going there, getting this money. I, I think it's it's a nice ad for the Yankees, and I think he's going to pitch well. Uh, good compliment with. Garrett Cole there, righty and a lefty. But, you know, aside from, like, Rodon, I'm thinking, you know, for the Yankees, it's, I don't know how much he moves the needle for that. Their pitching's not bad already. Uh, I think they need position players. So, while signing Carlos Rodon is not going to – it's definitely not going to hurt your team, I just don't know if it was – the best move that they could have made. So uh, I'm just interested to see how it works out. I'm sure he's going to pitch really well and you get a playoff series. Uh, you know, you, now you have Cole and, and Rodon up there and that's definitely a, a great one too. I'm just interested to see how it works out. It's like, you, you know, they, they bring back, they bring back judge, which obviously they needed to do, but what else, you know, judge, carried that offense for the majority of that year and they haven't added anything else there. They've just gotten guys older. So just interested, but you know, strictly talking about Radon, great pitcher, really good stuff. I think he'll, I think he'll play really well there. I mean, that's music to my ears talking about the, the demise of the New York Yankees. Cause you're right. I mean, like they just lost and we'll talk about him in a little bit. Like Matt Carpenter was the juice there for like a good month. Like he kind of like helped carry the load of Aaron judge there for a little bit. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like even when they're pit- like their pitching has never been a problem, but I feel like this move also is probably made for like, in case Nestor Cortez regresses, which, you know, I don't want to be Debbie Downer here, but like he probably will to some degree. Like he, I don't know if he's be posting those kind of numbers year in, year out. Like Severino could be healthy for a full year. They're obviously counting on Frankie Montas too, to, to not be 2022 Frankie Montas and to turn it around. So um, and we've talked a lot about last week duos of starting pitchers. Where do you think Cole and Rodon rank in terms of starting pitching duos? Yeah, actually, when I when I was saying that, I actually thought about that in my head uh, exactly. And you know, it's definitely top five. I definitely 
definitely think it's top five. Um, not sure exactly where I'd have to look, but I definitely I like it. I like Rodon a lot. I think he's, I think he's tough. Uh, that lefty lefty arm angle, the, the fastball, the good power fastball. He, he's he's got great stuff. I mean, Cole is is Cole. This just I don't know. It's like with the Yankees. I guess it's unfair because every year with the Yankees, it's truly. World Series or bust, basically, and if they don't win the World Series, everyone shits on them anyway. So it's like that's unfair because obviously only one team wins it, and it's very hard to do. So you know, I I like the signing again. I like the signing, but I just I just don't think that it makes them as a team that much better. I, I like that. I have a quote. I was reading a Fangraphs article about Rodon, and I wanted to get your take on it. Just talking about the Yankees and Brian Cashman, it says, it's a great capstone move by Brian Cashman. His AL East rivals drew closer to him over the winter, particularly the Toronto Blue Jays. But by signing Rodon, he not only climbed up to the roof, but he also pulled the ladder up behind him. Do you, does that, that might be hyperbole. That might be, that might be a little exaggeration there. Um, does this does this just like seal the AL East for for the Bronx Bombers there? Not I'm not in my mind. I mean, I just don't. Again, Cole and Rodon, phenomenal. That is that is great. But you can't win games if you're not scoring runs. You know, at the end of the day, you got to score to win. And you talk about regression. I mean, is Judge going to hit sixty something homers again? Chances are no, right? I mean, can he for sure? But I don't know if whoever the last guy to hit 60 homers is back-to-back seasons is. Um, you know, they, they've re-signed Anthony Rizzo, who is, is a, a really good player, and, and you, they need him. But other than what else? I mean, there's they haven't done anything else. They're, they're You're backing on – uh, the kid Anthony Volpe to come up and play shortstop eventually, and I know they had some other young. What was it? Uh, Peraza and Cabrera came up and did some nice things, but you know, you still Harrison Bader looked good in the playoffs, so you get him for a full year. But you're still talking about you know uh, Aaron Hicks struggling in the outfield. Uh, you know Stanton is he going to be healthy? Obviously, when when he put, when he's healthy, he's a very very good player. Um, Josh Donaldson's another year older. He's playing third base, I guess. And the, I, I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of question marks there that that are just still question marks. The same as last year, you know. It's the same same team plus Rodon. Is that good enough to get you over the hump of whatever else is in the AL? Uh, I I don't think so. You something to keep an eye on. Yeah, you're right. They have they have to go back up against the Astros. You know, probably. We're looking ahead to 2023. I mean, that's – is that – I mean, the rotation, could it go up against them now? I don't know. Framber Valdez, Christian Javier. It'll be interesting to Dude. see. And, yeah, they add – I mean, Jose Abreu's on that team now. I mean, they lose Justin Verlander, which, you know, definitely big. But I, it's it's very interesting. It's, it's just – it's very interesting. It's awesome. All right. There's another move that we wanted to talk about. It was Dansby Swanson. So he was the last of the big four shortstops to sign this offseason. Dansby's going to the Chicago Cubs for seven years, $177 million. Uh, I went and looked. So apparently the Braves had offered him six for 100 around the all-star break. And Dansby's like, no, I'm not doing that. And then they just, I don't think they ever really made him another significant offer after that. 
So it was pretty, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that he wasn't going back to Atlanta. Um, Dansby though, like again, another baseball reference, just journey of a career where it's like the guy was super rushed to the big leagues. He, he played like less than, I think it was like a hundred something games in the minors. He was drafted by the diamondbacks quickly traded, rushed up by Atlanta, but it's like, you know, I, I he had that stretch for that three, four years there. It was tough. It was tough at the plate. Figured it out though. I mean, he's been, he plays like almost every single day the last couple of years. He averages 26 homers the last couple of years too. But it's like in a season where we see guys like Trey Turner and Carlos Correa sign these gigantic mega contracts, like, I don't know, seven for 177 for Dan C. Swanson. Not, not too bad. I think it's a great contract for him. The Cubs needed somebody, somebody that's kind of come in and be the face of that franchise now. And, you know, he's, he's a good shortstop. Um, the Braves, I, I guess they're, they probably have some young guy we don't even know about, or the, you know, I know, uh, Vaughn Grissom can play some middle infield. I don't know how much of shortstop he's played, but you know, maybe Jeremy Pena's success with the Astros had the, has the Braves feeling that they can replace him for, you know, the, that dollar value, but I, I'm, I'm happy for Chicago. Good for Dansby. Uh, the Braves, man, I, they better have some sort of plan because the Phillies and the Mets are going to be no joke in that division, and the Braves are going to have their work cut out for them. And Dansby was a big part of that team. Absolutely. Think? I mean, Dansby, I mean, gold glove, deep caliber defense too. But, yeah, you're right. They, they do like this Vaughn Grissom guy a lot. 41 games last year. He batted 291. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's – that I, he that I could that could be like Jeremy Pena vibes with the Astros. Guy comes in, fills the shoes of a guy that leaves in free agency, doesn't do too bad. But you're right, the Cubs. Uh, one of my friends is a Cubs fan. We talk about this all the time. It's like they they had 74 wins in 2022, but it's the Chicago Cubs. And now that they've had the success that they've had in the last five years, it's like yeah, you can't just go back to being bad again. Like I feel like you kind of have to sustain that level of success. Um, I'm curious too, like how much better are the Cubs? Do you think? So, like, Bellinger, Tyone, they signed for the rotation. Dansby, Foxberger for the pen. They got rid of Jason Hayward, which could be addition by subtraction. Um, Like, what are we thinking for Chicago Cubs next year? Is it going to be markedly better? I don't think markedly better. Maybe a little bit better. I mean, if you're getting MVP Bellinger, you know, if he gets the swing stuff, I I, I got to think he's going to have a better season. You know, I, how much better of a season? We'll see. I, that's that's a nice up the middle right there. Dan's being shortstop and him, him at uh, in center field. But it, they lost Wilson Contreras. That's that's a big – he's been one of their guys for a while now. I, you know, the, the Reds aren't very good, but the, the Cardinals are very good, and the Brewers are a pretty good team too. I don't know. I don't know who the free agent class is after this year, but yeah, you would think that the Cubs are still looking to make some splashes, right? And by the, like the durations of the contracts they're handing out too, it looks like they're kind of they're angling to be better, you know, for a long period of time or try to set themselves up. They, you ever heard of this guy Matt Mervis, by the way? M e r v i s. I heard the name or saw the name somewhere talking about him. Uh, first base. Yeah, big lefty first base. Uh, 36 bombs and a 309 average in the minors last year. They're counting on him to be like, pick up the power. I feel like in that Cubs lineup. Um, 
So look look at us going all in depth here. We're, just, we're breaking we're breaking shit down like it's MLB Network tonight. It's um keep an eye out for that Matt Mervis guy because that could be your first base DH guy for the Cubs there. Um, you know help, maybe help pick up some of the, the gap there. Um, big shoes to fill though for for Frank Schwindel. So Frank, Frank the Tank going to Japan. Me <laughs> come back on the pod talk about Japan. We do write write that down. Make mental note of that. We would like to have him talk about the works Buffaloes at some point. Um, so yeah, anyway, going back to the Cubs real quick, last 70 games of the season, 39, 31. So they had a better second half than most people thought. I, yeah, I think they're, they had 74 wins last year. This is a 500 team. This is a, this is a 500, maybe slightly better pushing for that third wild card. I feel like why not? I, I also had them as one of my teams to watch, uh, going into this year. So the third wild card is going to be hard to come by though. That's, that's yeah. the only problem. But you're you're right. I, I do think I think Seiya Suzuki can be a, a, a nice player if he stays healthy. Um, but you know you're going to be talking about the Phillies, Braves, and Mets out of that NL East, and then the Dodgers and Padres out in the NL West too. That's that's that'll be that's, that wild card is no joke. But we'll see. We'll see. Um... All right, a couple more free agent moves to talk about. We're going back to Brian's team, the Padres. They signed two guys, Seth Lugo and Matt Carpenter. Um, you know, these aren't like A-list free agents, but I think each of them kind of bring their unique talents to the team. Seth Lugo, curveball machine, got two years and 15 million player option. Uh, so I, w- have you faced Seth Lugo before? He, he's an NL guy. I have not faced Lugo before, but he every time I watch him pitch, I'm like, this dude is nasty, and I feel like he just – has gone under the radar a little bit. I like that addition for the Padres. The Carpenter one is very interesting too, because like you said, he carried the Yankees for a little bit there. I think it's 14 homers in 47 games or something, which is very good. And and reviving his career, obviously was a great hitter in his prime with the Cardinals. I mean, if you're getting that kind of homer production from from Carpenter, that's a that's a great DH or, or first baseman there to for the Padres. I, I really like that signing too. If you know he can he can do what he did last year again or, or close to it. Um, but yeah, I think the Padres are done on the the big splashes there. I think, <laughs> I think they've made enough of those. So complimentary pieces are going around. But I, you know, Lugo and Carpenter, I think are two valuable pieces for sure. What do you think? I like them both a lot. Like I, I, I think I had Matt Carpenter is one of my under the radar free agents, uh, one of our top fives that we did. Um, you're right, only 47 games last year, but the numbers he put up were like video games. He hit three or he slashed 305, 412, and 727 with 15 bombs in 154 plate appearances. Um, probably won't do that for an entire full season, but uh, yeah, who's to say that you know a, a full year of being the DH, you probably don't want to put him in the field at 37 years old that often. But yeah, I mean, I wanted Trey Mancini to go be the, the Padres DH guy, but Matt Carpenter for two years is that, that's a pretty sweet deal. Um, and then Lugo, the only thing I had with him is that like, he's been, he's had so much success in the bullpen. Uh, and like, whenever you think back to him as a starter, it didn't really go that great. Uh, the Padres have said they would like to put him back in the rotation, but do, do you think that he'll be able to, to switch back and have the same level of success you feel like in the, uh, in the rotation as in the bullpen? You know, that I think that's the beauty of it is if, you give him a shot in the rotation. That's what he wants to do. And if it doesn't pan out, 
then you can put him back in the bullpen and he'll probably, you know, be just as effective as he was. They have two interesting guys. So they have him and they have Nick Martinez, who are kind of can do both. Or you, Nick Martinez did both last year, and Lugo has has started before. So it, it's just it gives you more options, and, and you kind of just see what's working and what's not working. But to have a guy that has the you know has the ability to go in the pen if need be, it's definitely a big thing for them too. One last, last cool stat I found for Seth Lugo. We talked about his curveball. Since 2018, his curveball is ranked 16th out of 156 pitchers with 1.16 runs above average uh, per 100 pitches. Uh, I mean, he's his, the pitches never rank lower than the 99th percentile in spin rate, and it consistently features over 60 inches of drop. So Seth Lugo's curveball is... I mean, like that's like Barry Zito levels of like dominance. I mean, you think of like guys who are like curveball dominant, like that's just got to be so sick to spin it up there and just know that nobody can touch it. Definitely tough to pick up. No doubt about it. Yeah. It's a lot of spin. 60 inches of drop. It's incredible. Um, all right. A couple last quick segments that we'll get to an interview for this week. We have our fudging awesome moment of the week. Our fudging awesome moment of, of the week is brought to you by our sponsor, the original fudge kitchen. You can find them online at fudgekitchens with an S.com. They ship fudge and sweet treats all over the country. It's phenomenal. I need to order some more. And it stays good forever. And it took me at least two weeks to eat all of it because it was just it's it's just so good. But Jersey Shore, Philly listeners, I don't think anybody's down there because it's supposed to be about 10 degrees up there coming up this weekend. This weekend. But some people do go for the uh, the holidays for Christmas and stuff. So if you're down there, uh, they have locations in Stone Harbor, Cape May, Wildwood, North Wildwood, and Ocean City. Go check them out. It is Fudge Kitchen, and you can find them at fudgekitchenswithans.com. So this story comes because, you know, doing this podcast, we've had a lot of Tampa Bay Rays guys on, and my Twitter feed has slowly been morphed into a lot of Tampa Bay Rays topics. A lot of Tampa Bay Times articles pop up on my feed now, which I like. Um, so I saw this article pop up and it talked about how the Rays had traded JP fire eyes into the Dodgers and they got back this guy. He's a lefty reliever named Jeff Belge. Um, and why it was interesting is because that Jeff Belge just had limited vision in his right eye and he's considered legally blind. This guy, he had a freak accident when he was nine, a piece of shale went into his eye and he had to have two surgeries. And then he like the same eye when he was 17, he had to have an another additional surgery. So this guy's had a really bad string of luck and he's like I said, considered legally blind but he's 6'5", and he's a hard-throwing pitcher. Uh, in the minors last year, he had a 3.66 ERA. Um, so it's it's interesting his vision, how it was impacted because of those injuries. He says he can only see some colors in the outlines of objects, and uh, he has a 2,300-2,400 slash vision. So you think 2020 is perfect? He has 2,300 vision in that eye. So that's I that's I don't know how he, he functions as a pitcher like that. Um, but despite all of that, like Belge says that like it's the, the vision part of that. It's not a big deal. He, like he said, quote, it doesn't really bother me. It's just me having a dream and following it. It's a bump along the way. And I had to get over that. So I thought that was a really cool story. Um, I, I'm excited to see him in Tampa though. We, we talked about this before we started recording, like any guy that goes to the Rays, like, you know, the Rays saw something in him. So he's going to be probably just an awesome big league reliever here for them at some point. Yeah. what That's crazy. What a great attitude he has, but Crazy story. Obviously, if the Rays, first of all, the Dodgers do it very well too. But if the if the Rays traded for him, you know, Fire Eyes and good pitcher just hurt. It's the only and the, the Rays are always on a crunch for a roster spot, so it's the only reason they traded him. But 
if this is the race one back for this, I mean, the kid's got to be able to pitch. So, yeah, I'm sure we're going to see him next to Pete Fairbanks here pretty soon in that bullpen. <laughs> yeah, Pete, yeah, people love this guy. Um, all right, last thing for you guys. We have our top five for this week. Uh, we saw a really cool article. was talking about how there's a lot of players in Major League Baseball that need to have a rebound year. Guys had a down 2022. They have to turn it around, or they're in need of a big turnaround for 2023. So Brian and I will be ranking our top five players in need of a rebound for the year 2023. Uh, I will start us off at number five. I'm going to the Dodgers. Max Muncy. The Dodgers need all the help they can get offensively. We all know about all the guys they've lost this offseason. Justin, Trey Turner, like, you know, they've made some moves to try to fill those voids in the offense. But Max Muncy, if they're going to be good again, it's because they have guys like Max Muncy turning it around. Uh, you can't hit 196 again. Yeah, I looked, and in the first half, he hit 164. So if you're playing fantasy baseball and you had Max Muncy on your team, it was a, it was a tough sledding. Um, number four, I have Javi Baez. Remember him? That, that's a name. I don't think a lot of people. So he's in he's in Detroit now. In case you were forget you forgot about him, uh, he's a, he just finished year one of a six year 140 million dollar contract with Detroit. Um, first half of last year, he hit 213. He had a 251 on base. So uh, he got better in the second half, but the guy only had 17 home runs for somebody that usually hits 30. So Javi Baez definitely need of a rebound for 2023. Uh, I'm going with another name you probably haven't thought a lot about recently. Number three is Chris Bryant. Remember him? Like he's in Colorado now. He signed a seven-year deal for 182 million bucks to play left field. Um, he's had a lot of injuries. If you look at like the operation chart for him, it's just like every part of him is lighting up red. It's like the back soreness, low back strain, plantar fasciitis, bone bruise. It's like the guy has just been riddled with injuries this past year. So uh, I think if the Rockies are going to, you know, go back to being a respectable franchise again in the out West, I mean, they, they signed him for a reason. Chris Bryant definitely needs a rebound. Number two, I'm going Trevor story. This guy missed 68 games, another injury guy due to wrist and heel injuries. Uh, but when he did play, he only hit 238 which is uh, he's going to be your new starting shortstop every day for the Red Sox. So uh, you got to fill that Xander Bogart size hole out there at shortstop. So Trevor story is number two, last but not least I'm going to Anthony Rendon. Uh, he's on a seven year, $245 million contract. First three years of that deal. He's hit 20 homers and he's only at a seven night, seven seventy nine OPS. And he's had 3.3 baseball reference war in 157 games. That's three years. Uh, and plus, okay, you'll say 2020 with the, with the shortened season. He's played 32% of the games in full seasons, back-to-back -back years last year and this year. So uh, that offense, we always talk about how Trout and Otani can't, you know, get anything done. They need a little protection. Why not just use the guy that's making $35 million a year to play third base? So Anthony Rendon, clean it up. We have some of the same guys on the list for sure. Uh, my number five is Chris Bryant. You laid that out pretty good. Still think it's a very – Still just can't believe he's a Colorado Rocky. Just doesn't really compute in my mind. But, yes, he just needs to be healthy. Good player when he's out there. Um, need him to stay healthy. Number four, Anthony Rendon. <laughs> you said it, too. I, I mean, it's kind of sad, man, because he was – I enjoyed watching him hit and play the field uh, with the Nationals so much before he left. And it's just, you know, has not worked out so far over there uh, in Anaheim, mostly because of health. but. Yeah, need him to step it up a little bit this year. Number three, Max Muncy. You know, they need him. Aside from the fact of the down year he had last year, like they, the Dodgers need him to produce. They, like you said, they lost Justin Turner, they lost Trey Turner. Haven't signed anybody to fill those voids. 
he needs to hit, hit like Mac, Max Muncy has hit, you know, the past couple of years, not last year. Um, and I, I love watching him hit too. I think he's a great hitter. Uh, my number, my top two are, are different than yours. So number two is going to be Wander Franco from the Rays. Uh, signed a big contract, was hurt a lot last year. And and when he did play, you know, was was fine, but not as good as his, his uh, rookie campaign. Still waiting to see that consistent power come out with him because I watched it firsthand. It's it's absolutely there from both sides of the plate. He's an absolute freak. But the if the Rays are ever really going to get to where they come so close to getting seemingly every year, uh, he needs to play at almost an MVP level. So Water Frank is number two. And then number one for me is, is Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh Misses the first. I think he's out the first 29 games of the year off the top of my head, I think. Um, but obviously it's been a tough year for him. Needs to come back. Needs to be healthy. Needs to go out there and play well and and be the player he was before all this stuff happened. Um, and on top of that, yeah, it, that – the old Fernando Tatis Jr. to that Padres team, man, uh, wow, that could be something serious. So I, I, I'd like to say it, but he definitely needs to rebound just for his own sake and, man, just his legacy, everything. He, he needs to have a bounce back year this year, and, and I think he will. Uh, he's eligible to return uh, from suspension on April 20th, 420. Um, just hilarious. So that's what probably like 19 now. When's it? Yeah. I feel like opening day is like March 31st now or something. Yeah. Probably yeah, about 20 games or so. So yeah. Yeah. Cause the playoff run helped with like the offsetting. Yeah. In terms of less days in this year. Oh, man, you're talking like Tatis, Bogarts, Machado, Soto, or, you know, whatever order it's going to be like. Good luck. What a, what a four to start off right there. Jesus. I have. I have the Dodgers projected starting lineup for 2023 as it sits right now. Uh, Bet Betts, Freeman, Will Smith, Muncie batting uh, cleanup, playing third. Uh, JD Martinez at DH, Gavin Lux at short, Trace Thompson in center, Chris Taylor playing second, and then James Outman in left field. I've never heard that name in my life. Outman debuted last year. I think he he he's got a nice little swing. He wasn't up for very long, but it's you know tough to break in there with the Dodgers. But uh yeah, I mean I think that the Padres lineup as much as I think the Padres lineup is definitely as yeah, better better than that. Gavin Lux can be a can be a superstar, I think. But yeah, I don't I don't uh six through nine doesn't that, scare anybody. Oh uh, yeah, I was gonna say that is not the type of lineup we've come to like be used to the Dodgers running out these past couple of years. Yeah. I think, I think that's a, I think it's a nice way to put it. It's not, it's not the big bad Dodgers where one through nine, you're, you're scared shitless that like, and everybody has like, you know, you have Trey Turner stealing bases. You have all these guys hitting home runs and it's like, I don't know. I feel pretty good if, if, you know, Chris Taylor and Trace Thompson and Gavin Lux are, you know, supposed to be providing run support. I don't know. Go pods. Yeah. Go. 20, 2020, the world series. Like when, like sitting there watching and just every guy came up like, fuck, there's no break. Like this guy's good. This next guy's good. 
every every uh, part of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's definitely a little different from that. Man, yeah. This is again, this just, just makes me excited for baseball to come back. I, I I think you tweeted it last week where it's just like you just want baseball to come back. I just want baseball to come back now so we can we can see the Padres play baseball. We're getting there. We're definitely getting there. And for this week, our uh, our guest was Thomas Eshelman, uh, pitcher, well, former pitcher, now pitching coach with the Padres. Um, played in Baltimore for a while there, so I know you had a lot of fun. What a what an awesome guy and some cool stories you had. It was really fun talking to him. It was. Yeah. I knew this, like I knew he would be a great interview for this because he checked a lot of boxes where it's like the Orioles connection. So I can nerd out and talk Orioles. And it's also like, you know, he spent all of last year in the Padres minor league system. So there's some great conversations that we had about that, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited for him. He's going to be an awesome pitching coach there in, in the organization there for San Diego. So um, yeah, it, it's, it was a great conversation. We got, again, I nerded out all about the Orioles stuff. So um, that's, that's just par for the course. Whenever we have a guy from Baltimore on though, that's. And, that's cool. uh, a San Diego native too. Yeah. So pretty Carl's cool for him. Him. Yeah. Pretty cool for him uh, to be working for his hometown team now. And he did have a, a very nice career. Uh, can't wait to see what he does on the coaching side of it. So uh, let's send it over to our interview with Thomas Eshelman. And before we send it to our interview with Thomas Eshelman, we have two last quick things. We wanted to give a shout out to friend of the podcast actions over words. It's an apparel brand with the mission of encouraging people to use their actions instead of their words. Uh, go to actionsoverwordsapparel.com and use code N4L for 10% off of your entire order. Also, we have a lot of great content in the Not For Long Media family of podcasts. We have uh, Colin Thompson's show. Check it out. And also, we have Two Girls, One League and, and Odd G's with two great Philly radio guys, Harry Mays and Jason Mertides. Uh, And now, here's Thomas Eshelman. And joining us today on Breaking Bats is former second-round pick of the Houston Astros. Uh, he's traded to the Phillies right after that. Uh, made his debut with the Baltimore Orioles in 19. Uh, Cal State Florida guy, Thomas Eshelman. Uh, he's going to be a pitching coach with the Padres this year. Thomas, thanks for thanks for joining us, man. How you doing? What's going on? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Just kind of enjoying life off a little bit in the offseason before everything gets going again and um, about getting ready for the holiday season. So that's fun. Always a good time. We were talking real quick before we got to recording here. We got to give a shout out to old Chad Wallach if Wally ever listens to this. Uh, Thomas was telling me some stories about <laughs> about you in Florida. And so we'll have to talk about that later. But man, what uh, before I let J.A. get into the all the questions with you, just kind of what was this past year like with you being with the Padres uh, in the minor leagues there? How was that? What What was kind of going on? It was fun. I mean, obviously, being in the lockout situation and being a big league free agent was a little bit nerve-wracking of a time of, of not being able to understand when I could talk to teams and get a job or or not get a job. So to be able to get a call halfway through March from the Padres organization asking me if I was be able to go down to double A and, and get some innings in for them, that was something that, one, it was one of those things where I've always wanted to play for the Padres and the organization, and two, it was – um, right time and be able to get a job, uh, obviously in, in those like scarce times. So, uh, it was a good experience. I was able to go up and down a little bit between double A and triple A and, and help out where, where stuff was needed and kind of checked my ego at the door and, um, 
didn't worry about where I was at just having a job at that point. So it was a good experience, met a lot of good people and obviously it translated into a coaching job in the org. So, um, super good organization to be in right now. A lot of, a lot of excitement and, uh, looking forward to being able to work with them. Got that right. Definitely a lot of excitement. Were you, did you end up crossing paths with Brandon Dixon down there too? I did. Yeah. So I met Brandon first. <laughs> The first time I met Brandon, we were in um, minor league spring training together and we were like sitting in the back row and, and, in Arizona, I never got to experience Arizona spring training. And obviously the field's a little bit more spread out. So Dixon was running back and forth between fields and he just finally sat down at his locker and took a deep breath. And first day I met him, I was like, you all right, man. And he's like, yeah, like it's just tiring, dude. <laughs> uh, I said, yeah, we're getting old, man. Um, but to be able to be with him and start in San Antonio and then watch him go up and, and be on the NL, uh, NLDS roster and everything. So, uh, super good dude. Couldn't happen to a better person. Yeah. I forgot about that too. Cause you're, you, we talked about Wally and then we were talking about Zach Vinci before we recorded too. That was my house. That was my full house in the fall league in 2016 with Dixon, Vinci, uh, Chad and me. So we had, we had some fun. That's a good that, house. It just popped in my head after that but uh yeah so you you bounced up and down a little bit but you also threw to Tatis sometimes yeah is that true yeah what happened with that so we were up in Tacoma I was in El Paso at the time and um Tatis was just getting ready to bounce back off of his um his surgery and he was going through couple of live abs before he got sent out to um go hit during the or go do his rehab stint at, at, a, at affiliate and i actually got sent from tacoma to san diego to go throw um, a couple of live abs to him um to make sure that he was ready to rock and uh it was a cool experience to be able to throw to a guy like that and and i mean i've already i threw against him in 19 and he he popped me then and he popped me again in live ab so uh unbelievable talent though and uh just be able to pitch in petco again and and being able to um pitch to a guy that was that was at that stature yeah that's cool uh what'd you think what'd you what'd you think of el paso as a pitcher i, I liked it i liked the stadium i didn't like the like the pitching element to that uh pco in general is just a tough league to pitch in but I mean, if you can learn how to create swing and miss in that league and, and learn how to get weak contact, you're going to learn a lot about yourself and, and how to pitch in the big leagues. Um, but, yeah, it, it was one of those things where it was like guys were hitting balls, slamming their bats, and balls going out, um, especially in spots like Albuquerque. Um, but, yeah, it, it was just one of those things where I was like everyone talked about it, and I was like, yeah, all right, whatever. And then I got to be in, in it and experienced it, and it was uh, – it was a learning experience for sure. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely – I didn't – El Paso, hitting in El Paso, I actually really didn't like it. Like, I thought there was – I think there was like one ball I hit in El Paso that I was around the bases and I was kind of like, all right, I don't know how that one got out, but I'll take it. <laughs> but the other places, yeah, Albuquerque, Vegas, I missed Vegas, but all those places, Reno, are definitely – you know, little Salt Lake, a little uh, easier for the hitters there for sure. But I did I, something about the visual in El Paso. I didn't like like the backdrop. I didn't see the ball well. I can I can see there. that. Yeah, I don't know really what it was, but every 
especially like later in the game once it was dark. I'm like, I feel like I can't see this ball right now. But it's a nice place, nice park. Not a bad setup there at all. Um, One of the best parks I've ever played at, too, as far as facilities wise. Like it's close to big league as possible. Um, I mean, I got to pitch in or I got to play in uh, Lehigh Valley, too. And that was right up kind of like the same alley um, nice. of the uh, niceness of a, of a stadium. Um, but yeah, I definitely took the IL for granted <laughs> over the PCL. <laughs> IL, I'm with you. I like the, I definitely like the IL better than PCL. Yeah. But last question for me before we, before I let Jay start really rolling here. What, what's your favorite minor league place you've played in out of all, favorite? any level? Um, I like Charlotte a lot. Charlotte, Charlotte was definitely yeah. a good spot. Um, yeah, Charlotte and probably Portland, Maine. Um, were my two favorite. Did you um, play for Charlotte or just playing against Charlotte? I played against them, but we always – I was in the um, south division of the IL uh, in 21 and 19, um, and we played there all the time. So I got to experience the city a lot, so it was cool. Yeah, Charlotte. That might that might be number one for me too, Charlotte. That play. Have you been there, J.A.? I have. I actually have been to a um, – sure was a Charlotte Knights. Yeah, I mean yeah, the backdrop the for that – it, that place is insane, right? You oh, get the whole skyline dude. behind you. It's, it's so cool. Yeah. It really is. It's an awesome, it's an awesome place. That was uh some fun games there for sure. Yeah, it's interesting to hear, especially guys who have played like both divisions, to hear the places that guys like and, and don't like. That place was probably as close as the PCL as you're gonna get. Yeah. The new balls. That it yep. flies out of that those balls. Columbus was another place that was like that. I don't know if you if you got to Columbus, but I always loved yeah. hitting Columbus too. Playing there with the old balls, they would still fly out there too. And, oh my god! Yeah, I hit the old balls. I went oppo for the like the first two times in my life in Columbus too. Like in the series, I'm like, I like this place. Yeah, definitely play <laughs> here. Like, all right, I'm throwing a sinker today, and I'll never know how to throw a sinker, but I'm throwing one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. All right, Jay, what do you got? No, one last minor league question because I think we've talked about Norfolk before. Brian, did you say that you do or you don't like playing in, at Harbor Park down there? I hate Harbor Park. That might be my number one hated park in the world. I remember in nineteen when I was there, I was roll. I mean, rolling like I was fucking rolling. And first, I think it was a first at bat of the series there, and the wind was howling in like howling in off the bay or whatever. And I crushed a ball. I don't remember who it was off of crushed a ball. And I'm like, Oh yeah. See ya. And knocked out, like caught on the warning track, you know, and I'm just pissed off. So mad. And then uh, I forget if it was the next at bat or like my third at bat that game or whatever, like a same thing, absolutely like demolish a ball to right center. And I didn't even, like I slammed my bat down right away. I knew that it was going to get like <laughs> get caught at the track. Same shit. Like right up against the fence, caught. I was just, and it happened another game in that same series. At least, at least one other time where caught at the track. I'm like, this place fucking blows. I gotta, I hate this place. <laughs> I'm pretty. I think I had like one hit that series. I was like, get me out of here. Get me out of here. There in uh, the old um, what was the Red Sox old place? Paul Tuckett. Yep. Dude, they had like a baby blue batter's eye. I was hitting 500 rolling in there, and I, I left with like one for 17 
with like a half a thumb was how I got out of that place. It was brutal. <laughs> Good times. I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> I bet you did. I bet you did. No, it, it's, it's got its perks, but definitely like they're actually going to do, I think they're redoing it um, and adding in like a casino and everything in the left field over there. Um, but definitely a pitcher's park for sure. It was a cool place. I'm not knocking the place, but yes, the wind coming off the water there I was not a fan of. That's all. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's just so funny, like going back and forth because I'm a big minor league baseball guy. Living in Maryland, I feel like there's you could probably within a two hour drive visit like a dozen minor league baseball teams. So that's that was a lar- that was a large part of me growing up. So uh, Harbor Park's cool, but yeah, it's just I love anytime we can bring up that Brian's just you know he, he had a bad string of luck there with uh, the the ball coming off the off the uh, the wind there. Um, I, I did want to go back though, cause I was reading all about your, your career at Cal state Fullerton. Uh, and just like somehow you had like the, the best command in college baseball at that time. Like it was 63 and a third innings without a walk. And you finished the year with three walks, 115 and two thirds. I mean, that's incredible. Where, where did that kind of command start? And like, how were you able to accomplish all that? So I, in high school, I already, I, I had the ability to throw strikes, but I never really like put an emphasis on walks and, and being able to get ahead, stay ahead, or win the two out of three, like we said in college all the time. And um, once I got to school, once I got on campus, like the main thing that they told me was basically, hey, like you're going to have the ability to pitch, but you need to throw strikes and and like get quick outs and yada, yada, yada. So I kind of took that underneath my wing and, and really tried to emphasize that in everything I did. Um, and our pitching coach at the time, who's now the head coach there, his name's Jason Dietrich, his main thing was like stressed catch play. No matter what, like you had to hit the eye on the chest in a shirt that we had, it had Titans across the chest and you had to hit the eye, the eye with every throw. And so I just kind of like really emphasized that with the way I've been about things and everything like that. And um, it just kind of translated honestly, like into the games and I was able to to take what I did during catch play and, and it went, it went well for me. So Obviously, we we like to throw the heater at at Fullerton, and we did it a lot. And I gave up a lot of hits, but um, just try to limit damage as much as possible. And and that was kind of our emphasis throughout the three years I was there. How much of that as a pitcher is mental, where it's like if you tell yourself uh, I'm not going to throw a ball, like I think I read a story where it's like that maybe it was the pitching coach or the manager came out to the mound where you're pitching is like you, you may maybe I just walk somebody on four straight. It's like you throw another ball, you're out. So, and then just like, like, how is a pitcher are you able to like lock it in and just tell yourself no more balls? Um, for me, it was the more I got ahead, the less I was able, or the more I was able to like be able to be comfortable, if that makes sense. So, like, if I got strike one, or if I got like, if I got strike one, or if I won the two out of three, if I went one on one, got one one, I was able to just kind of do what I wanted to do. So, that's the main thing I stressed myself on was winning the OO count. Um, and then being able to do whatever I want to do after that. But yeah, it was, we were, we were facing Oregon. I walked a guy on four straight, I think it was. And my head coach at the time, his name's Rick Vanderhook came out and said, Hey, you walk the next guy, you're done. And I, everyone kind of in the huddle and the mound was like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> um, so it was, uh, obviously strikes were a big, big importance at Fullerton, but, um, yeah, honestly winning the two out of three, getting ahead in the count and putting myself in a good position to, to put the hitter on his heels a little bit more on, instead of on the balls of his foot and getting, getting hungry for a pitch to do some damage on. And that's what made me more comfortable about what I wanted to do. 
are, are these the kind of things as we kind of jump around timeline here, like in your, your coaching career coming up here, are these the kind of things that like you, you can impart on, on some of these younger guys that are coming up through the organization, like the importance of winning that OO count and everything you just mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I, for me, catch play is the biggest thing. Uh, I think if you understand the importance of catch play and how it could translate to your to your presence on the mound and your command on the mound, I think that's going to be a big importance. I think at times in professional baseball, guys kind of get lackadaisical with with going out there and, and executing a, a good game at catch, um, myself included when I was there. And it was just kind of more of like, hey, go out there and go through the motions and get the body going as opposed to truly understanding what you're trying to do that day and, and what your intensity level is at to potentially – um, get what you need to get in and get out. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing is just your mental focus on how you go about your catch play. Any, any drills or anything like side work that you would do as well to kind of like sharpen your skills there? I think it's more mentally. I think if you go through, um, your mental side of, of, um, forget, I don't know what the word I'm trying to say is, but, uh, visualization, if you visualize what you're trying to accomplish, I think that'll do a lot of big dividends into, um, your overall game. Um, that's something that uh, we did at Fullerton. We had visualization station all the time at our batting practice groups and guys visualized, visualized what they wanted to execute in their mind. And it kind of helped get their mental capacity to execute and, and overall translate to what they're trying to do on the mound. Brian, anything like that a- applicable to, to your work as a hitter, like visualization, and everything he just said. Yeah, absolutely. I think, a lot of guys use visualization now because, you know, the more research comes out about how powerful it can just it can be. But, um, you know, I usually before I'm hitting, I'll, I'll picture myself, you know, hitting the ball in the gap or whatever, running, you know, jogging into second base, things like that. I definitely think that it makes a difference and in, in that, it, you know, I, I feel like as a pitcher, it can be even better than a hitter because, you know, the pitcher, you know exactly what you want to do. Hitter, we're kind of more reacting based off what, what pitch is coming. So if Thomas is up there about to throw, he can picture where he wants that fastball to go or whatever it is, you know. But without a doubt, I think it's definitely a useful tool for, you know, whether you're hitting or playing the field or pitching. Yeah. I mean, this stuff is fascinating from a fan's perspective to hear, like, the, the mental side of, of the game. It's just it, – it's so cool to hear. I, I did kind of want to jump ahead. So you have this fantastic career at Cal State Fullerton. The 2015 draft comes around. You have this, obviously, this this great track record, all the success in college. What was that pre-draft process like? Like, what take me back to that time in your life. Was it was it a lot of taking calls, meeting with teams? Like, what, what was that all like for you? Yeah, so 2015 season, I kind of went through the fall, and we had our, our meetings with the scouts in the fall, and a couple cross-checkers came in and was able to sit down with them and ask me questions and put me through some plans on what they saw, or I, I don't even know what they're called, but the, to get to how I learn about things or how I am as a person, like personality tests, I guess you could say, and uh, went through that, had the season, was pitching pretty well, and then... Um, my advisor at the time um, was telling me like what to expect. Um, and then I went on a stretch where I had like five straight games where I punched out like 10 and um, was rolling and kind of boosting my draft stock a little bit through that side of things. And uh, actually we were in our super regionals at the time um, in Louisville and the draft was on a Sunday, I believe. 
sorry, Monday. It was on a Monday, and um, we were playing our third game in the regional. If we won, we went to Omaha, and that same night was the first day of the draft. Um, so I just kind of had to put all my my uh, chips with my parents and make sure that they knew what was going on, what the number was, and all this kind of stuff. And my advisor worked through them and was able to uh, talk with them. I was actually drafted, I think, five minutes post me closing out the game going to Omaha. Um, so it was one of those things where I was literally in the post game meeting with our head coach and, um, I got a, a tap on my shoulder from our strength coach and he showed me the draft trick draft ticker. And I was, my name was come up uh, second round 46 pick by the Astros. So everything kind of hit me at once during that time. And it was pretty emotional. My gosh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing I wanted to, to really like talk a little bit more about was just like Mike Elias, who at that time for the Astros was their director of amateur scouting. I think what was like the first time you guys met and like, how, how did that kind of, you know, relationship grow over time? Yeah. So Mike actually was the guy that I went in. So I went in and signed my contract in Houston and he was the one that kind of uh, brought in my family, took them around um, uh, minute made and was able to, do all the things, do all the interviews. And um, he was kind of like our point of contact and kind of built a relationship right there. And then um, later on down the road, just kind of, when I got traded to Baltimore uh, at first, I didn't even realize Mike was the, the GM at the time. And then I looked up the GM and it was Mike and I was like full circle. Um, so it was pretty cool. Got to talk to Mike when I got called up and everything like that. So um Obviously, he saw something in myself that could help his ball club, and I was I was happy to be able to be a part of Baltimore and and their rebuild process. And I was really stoked for them to be able to um, be where they were at last year. What makes Michael Elias so good at what he does? Um, I think the ability to have that type of uh, relationships. Uh, I think obviously he just doesn't put value into a guy at the present moment, but wants to make sure to value them over time. And I think that that was a big thing for him. And obviously he's put in the work. He's being able to be adaptable and understand that um, it's a process. And he was able to use that process that didn't Houston and translate to Baltimore. And, um, and that's what I think that makes him really good. You think also that he just convinces, like, he's really good at like, you know, like you said, convincing people like to trust the process and just convince people that like there is a plan in place. Like I, I'm sure even back when he was like going through the pre-draft process with you, I'm sure like the bigger picture was, was a big like topic of conversation at the time. Like, do, do you think that's also kind of where he's just like a great communicator and, and a great, just like, you know, visionary mind when it comes to that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think, I think Mike does a good job of having people around him to make him um, make decisions better for himself if that makes sense so like he's got a really good assistant gm with him on staff and then he also he has a bunch of people um that he's hired to put themselves in a position to be good um for instance like he's he's got his his pitching guy over there in baltimore with him um so he he built up the minor league system again he's he's done things to where he he learns from other people and really trusts other people in the process and um I mean, they've, they've built something over there that's going to be sustainable and they got a lot of young guys with talent. And, uh, I mean, it looks like it's going to be heading in the right direction. No doubt. Brian, I mean, obviously we've talked a lot about the Orioles here on this podcast before. So, um, you know, from the outsider's perspective, or are you just a big fan of like, of Mike Elias as well? I appreciate what they're doing over there for sure. You know, I think, um, that turnaround last year was just, 
phenomenal. I don't think anybody expected them to be there. Yeah, I mean, you, J.A., were talking about them making the playoffs at one point before they traded your boy Trey Mancini and you didn't want him to, to, to trade him. Um, but the turnaround and, and obviously, you know, I don't want to say the process, but whatever his plan is, is, is starting to work. And, you know, the only tough thing is right now is that they, the other teams in that, that division are spending some, some pretty big money and, and they haven't been able to find that right guy to do it on yet or, or haven't done it. So, um, but obviously he, he knows what he's doing and, and it's definitely going in the right direction. Yeah, no, it's, that's the thing. You're right. We just see, we see the Yankees get Rodon and we see the Blue Jays spending all this money and we see Tampa doing all their things. Like, you know, it would be nice to, to see the checkbooks open a little bit. I don't know. Just, just a <laughs> fan here. Um, yeah. It's like when, when you're in the Astros system with him, like how do you, how do they differ in terms of the way they went about, like, did they do the little things right? Or like what fundamentally when you were with Houston, did you, did you notice that maybe even carried over to Baltimore? Uh, they had a, a little bit of uh, they had a plan and they executed the plan without really like letting the player get his head spinning on on what was going on, if that makes sense. So like I keep saying that, I don't know. But uh, like analytically, like if you go into loopholes and you truly dive in on stuff, your head can start spinning a little bit and you try to go and, and execute something that you're not like that you're not supposed to be focused on. You're supposed to be focusing on performance and how to like win that game that night or, or compete in the way they're supposed to compete. And I think that they're able to give the player just what was on the surface so that they have an understanding. And then, um, and then the player would understand and then go out and perform. Um, and I think that that was a big thing that they were able to, to do. And, and, um, and obviously in some of the pitchers that they have they they are doing it. Um, and they're young talents and, and they're molding them in the right way. What role did analytics play or does it play, uh, in, in, in your development as a pitcher? Like how, how nerdy do, would you get with some of these, uh, these advanced pitching analytics? Not that much. And that's what, that's what kind of like my, my thing right now is I'm truly trying to dive into it and try to get a better understanding of it. And, uh, like as a pitcher, I, I knew I'd, I had the old school mentality and, and that was probably something that I should have had a little bit more of a uh, new school understanding um, of how I can truly maximize my stuff and how I can change my stuff to better myself as a pitcher. Um, and also just use my stuff into my strength areas. Um, so I think that's something that I'm as a pitching coach, I'm trying to grow on and, and truly understand more and more in depth of what, um, what it is, that makes pitchers click and find their kind of unicorns of their, their pitches and how um, they can execute a pitch over and over again. It's cool. I mean, like I was even looking at this, like it's like Statcast MLB.com has like a whole different website for like advanced pitching analytics from like a fan's perspective. Cause I was trying to look up like what Carlos Rodon has done recently and how like his fastball velocity has gone up every single year. Um, and like, there's just all these charts and, and graphs and everything. So it's like, yeah, I mean, we really are living in that that analytics age where I feel like anything you want to, want to find out about how a pitch moves or, you know, tendencies or, you know, heat charts and spray charts, like, I, I think, you know, right, isn't it like, you know, the more information, the better when it comes to that stuff. Like, you know, there's a there's a lot of that kind of analytics stuff available. It's just up to you to, to decide, like, how you want to use it. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's a big thing of, um, like I said earlier, not going down a loophole 
yourself and how what you're looking at can maximize what you're trying to do. Um, I mean, as far as like, like Brian can attest to this, but like for me, like they can look at where my fastball is most of the time and look for that kind of cut that zone. Look for that ball out, out over if I'm missing arm side more than like a higher percentage of time. Um, or if I'm throwing more change-ups to lefties or curveballs to lefties, you can sit on a curveball at that time too or whatever. Um, so I think it's something that um, you can kind of like zone in on something that you can then look for and, and truly like maximize that that in your own game. Yeah, no. I mean, Brian, as a hitter, what what kind of uh, what what was your favorite analytic of yourself that you like to look at, or what, what do you like to track when it comes to hitting? That's a good question. I think I feel like the pitching analytics has become or has advanced faster than the the hitting analytics. Um, you know, when you talk about like analytics for hitting, it's like you know, exit velocity. I feel like is one that first comes to mind and. To me, like, that should be obvious, you know. <laughs> you hit the ball hard. The harder you hit the ball, the more often you're probably going to have more more success. Like, that's that's the goal, right? Does it? It's very hard to do. But like Thomas is saying, if he can get the tendencies of a pitcher or the trends or, you know, things that he really likes to do, you might be able to sit on that curveball in that certain situation or, or look for that for the hole at bat knowing that at some point he's going to try to do it, whatever it is. So things like that, but I'm still for hitting. I'm more of, I'm trying to build my swing and be on time and just react to a good pitch. I'm trying to keep it like that sounds more complicated than I wanted it to. Like I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible when I'm in the box, like you do all the pregame work, you do all the work in the off season, everything. So that when I step in the box, it's literally just see ball, hit ball. My body knows what it's supposed to do. And my eyes are just telling it what, what to do when the ball's coming. I'm Especially too. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not smart enough to, to be doing all, all that while I'm trying to hit the ball, you know? That's fascinating. Yeah, I guess you're especially your job too is like a pinch hitter there for a while. It was like very reactive, where it's like maybe maybe you're like because isn't it like if you're full time like everyday starter, you have like scouting reports of like starting pitchers, and you have more data. But it's like you know if you're coming in off the bench, you know like I feel like a lot of guys just go up there and just kind of you know maybe they, they they see what the pitchers got going on from the on deck circle as opposed to you know having all this stuff available ahead of time. Yeah, you're obviously the advantage is if you're playing the whole game or, or playing every day, you see guys more. And you're also just kind of the speed of the game. Whereas if you're coming off the bench, you know, maybe you faced this guy before and maybe that's why you're pinch hitting. Maybe you have a good, you know, you've had success against them, whatever, but you're pinch hitting. It's like, okay, he likes it. You know, you might, you might know this guy goes first pitch slider to pinch hitters or whatever. But, you know, my number one rule for pinch hitting was like, if first pitch is a fastball, you better swing at it. Basically, you don't want to get because most of the time you're pinch hitting against late, you know, back end bullpen arms and stuff like that. Like, you don't want to give those guys free strikes or free, you know, fastballs on the plate. Like, you better better be taking your shot at that. So, it's definitely a different dynamic, but that's what makes it hard and what makes it you know fun to do when when you get it when you get it done right. Yeah, I mean, like this, this, perfect yeah. perfect example for me. Sorry is. Uh, 
Daniel Bard. I pinch hit off Daniel Bard that season with the Padres. We were down a run, uh, and I was leading off the inning. And, you know, throws 100 with a good slider. And I just got called up that morning. And I was like, fuck it, you know, I'm taking a chance right here. Like, I'm fastball, middle, middle, and I'm just I'm just going to be ready for it. And if he throws me a slider that bounces at 30 feet and I swing at it, so be it. Like, I don't care. And sure enough, it was a fastball down the middle at 99, and I hit it off the top of the fence and scored, the, you know, double scored to tie the game. But sometimes as a hitter, man, that's you got to <laughs> just take your chances sometimes. Uh, Thomas, like you, you worked, you know, as a starter, as a reliever, like did your approach change depending on like what your role was going to be like, or, or were you just the, the same guy, no matter what the situation was? Uh, a little bit. I mean, obviously, um, as a starter, you got a little bit more time and more, um, yeah, more time to really set up what you want to do. Um, and most of the time as a reliever, especially in my situation, which I was a long guy, I was kind of like a, a plus minus guy. So that means like if you're up by a lot or down by a lot, you're pitching. And, uh, my main thing was when I'm in that situation, I get ready fast and I go in there and I try to make the game as fast as possible. Um, because a lot of the position players don't want to be out there at that time. So my main thing was to pound the zone and put them, <laughs> get them in the dugout as fast as possible and, and, and get on with the next, or uh, get on with the game and, and save the bullpen for a possible winning game the next day. Um, so kind of like in that situation, I was, I was kind of just be quick and save the bullpen and throw as many pitches as possible to make sure that the bullpen's ready for the next day. I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about that before. Did, did like your teammates and the guys in the field, do they appreciate that? It was kind of like a subtle, like, Hey man, like slap on the ass. Cause obviously we just got our asses kicked or, or just won by a lot. And there was a lot of like different kind of emotions in the, in the locker room. So you get in you, after your game and it's like everyone's riding high because some guy just went four for four and hit like two jacks or some guy just went 0 for four with four punch outs and our starter just got crushed. So it was one of those things where you kind of go in like you you kind of in yourself like slowly say, all right, I did my job, but I'm not going to be stoked on it. Make sure, make sure I get myself ready for the next opportunity and um, just know that when you go home at night, I did my job and um, hopefully we get a win the next day. That's so cool to hear. Um, your major league yeah. debut, though. And you know, go ahead, Brian. No, it's just like that job. People like don't understand how important of a job that is. What what he just talked about. Like, I don't think fans appreciate the guys who end up in that duty, like the players in the clubhouse, especially the pitchers in the clubhouse do of whoever does that because you literally are, you're saving arms. Like you're, you're doing so much for your team that people don't realize. Yeah. If you're losing 10, nothing and, and you're the one who's got to get on the mound and keep getting out and, and do it. Like that's, it's so important. I don't, I don't think fans appreciate that as much as they should. That's a great point. Yeah. And, sorry. Just had to throw that in there. That's a valid point. Yeah, I mean, you're right, because if it's like, if I'm a fan and I'm sitting there and, and my team is losing by a lot, one, the game's probably been turned off already, but two, if I'm still sticking around, you're right, it's like, yeah, I, I don't, I guess I don't appreciate the the guy who comes in there, it was a mop-up duty or I'm, whatever, is there like a term for like, yeah, we're winning. It's, it, because you, what you're doing is like the next day, 
you know, you have guys fresh to, if it's a two, one game or whatever it is, you have more guys ready to throw that game if you need them. Or if it's another scenario, like you're just, you're just doing so much for your team that people don't realize whether you're doing it when you're up 10 runs or down 10 runs. We had a running joke in the bullpen. Um, and obviously 2019 was a tough stretch for, for Baltimore a little bit. Um, but we, there was a running joke when I had a sweatshirt on and I would like, once the game started getting out of hand, I would take off my sweatshirt and say, this looks like a job for mop up, man. <laughs> so, uh, Obviously, it's something that we never wanted to happen, and I love each and one and like every one of those guys. And we uh, we went through a lot of stuff with with one another, but we just kind of made sure that we caught like kept it light in the sit in the the current time. But yeah, it's definitely one of those things where, like Brian said, you never want to be in that situation. And obviously, it's it's your if you're a rookie, it's kind of like a like a not a hazing thing, but it's something that you got like you got to get yourself out of that spot. And if you do, if you come in there, you pump strikes and you put like put it the game to close and 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 uh, keep those arms fresh for the next game. It kind of puts it in the back of the mind of the manager of, hey man, this this guy could potentially earn a spot start. Or and if you do well on that spot start, you can kind of get the ball rolling into another start and potentially be a starter in the back end. So it's definitely one of those things where. Um, it's not one of those things you ever want to go through, but it's kind of like a well-respected position. Yeah. I mean, especially too. Cause like if it, you know, I guess that the name of the game there is just like, keep it, you know, keep the game manageable. And then at the end of the day too, it's like, make sure you don't have to have a position player pitch. Cause I feel like that would probably be, if you don't do your job, it's, you know, the second baseman's coming in to pitch for a little bit. And that might be. We had a, <laughs> another running joke in Baltimore. I was so rough game we were losing 23 to 2 i think at the time to houston and uh it got out of hand in about the sixth or seventh and then um we they called down after we had already used i think like four or five pitchers including the starter and uh obviously we had our like guys that we threw when we were up so they were they were down and i was kind of sitting there like all right what's gonna happen now and sure enough, called down, hey, get hot. It was was the eighth. And uh <laughs> I get two outs in the inning, and then they bring in Stevie Wilkerson. So our running joke after that game was that I was Stevie Wilkerson's setup man. Um <laughs> so he was coming with us to bullpen dinners and everything like that. So uh but again, just keeping it light, yeah, just getting through the season. But I uh, like I said, every one of those guys and I'll say this all the time. Every one of those guys were grinding. Like they were, they didn't want to be that team. They didn't want to be in that position. And um, so it, it was a special group. I still talk to those guys to this day. And um, yeah, it was, it was rough, but I mean, everyone got, got better because of it. And they learned a lot. I miss Stevie Wilkerson. What was his nickname? Was it like Dr. Poopoo or something? No, Breezy. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> It could be Dr. Poop too, though. Look that up. Um, yeah, it's like these are the things that like we forget about with like these the 2019 birds, the 20 well, 2020 was actually a better year for them, but just like yeah. the down years for the birds, which just like you know, there were guys like grinding who were trying to make a name for themselves. And it's yeah, that's that was a fascinating conversation we just had about that. Cause I like, you know, brought back some good memories and some not so great memories. Um, 
I want to talk about a good memory though. Uh, I want to talk about your major league debut that came in 19 uh, against Tampa, like stepping into a locker room, like in the middle of the year, like what was that experience like for you? And what do you remember about your debut? That's why I say like every one of those good uh, guys were good dudes. And I, I walked in that locker room and, uh, Chris Davis came right up to me. Trey Mancini came right up to me and they introduced themselves and I'll remember it to this day. And, um, but it, it was awesome. I got to experience my start with, um, Cashner in the dugout. And, um, it was just, I, I remember I grew up watching cash pitch, um, when he was with the Padres. So, um, but it was cool. I got to get my family down there. My wife, um, was down there with me and then, uh, my agent as well, but, it was just one of those things where it was like super surreal, something that, I mean, Brian, you know, it's one of those things where you work towards your entire life and then you hop out on that field and it's like, just like eye opening. It's something that you came and put into words. And it's like, I, I, I got a great text from my buddy's dad who played 13 years in the big leagues and uh, kind of, kind of nerve settled my nerves a little bit and was able to go out there and I gave up a two spot in the first. And then after that, I got in the dugout and cash kind of brought me over with, he goes, all right, you're done. Now go pitch. So, um, it was, it was great to have those veteran presences in there. Cause I was able to kind of talk to them and bounce stuff off them and kind of get a slap on the ass and say, Hey man, like just, just be you don't, don't change anything. And, and just understand that you've been playing this game your entire life. And it's the same thing. Um, so was in line for the win, but didn't happen. But it was uh, it was a great experience. Yeah, as as you were saying that, uh, Steve, I found the Stevie Wilkerson thing. Brandon Hyde said uh, he threw he threw poo poo out there, and then he elevated him to doctor it when he got a save in July of nineteen. So I forgot about that. <laughs> That's so. when he yeah he's in Cooperstown because of that. He got yeah. a, he was a two inning save in Anaheim. Were you were you on, you were on the team then? Right, that was in July. I pitched of that 19? day. I pitched that day. <laughs> yeah. I think we all did. Our bullpen was done. We didn't have any more guys in the bullpen. It was a, I think it was 16 innings. Yep. Or nine, it was 16. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. He had two inning and he, or he got two holes to fly out to center to end the game. <laughs> that was wild. Throwing like 55 mile an hour gas. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, But to go back to you for a second, you're right. Because that's those 2019 teams is like, the, the Orioles did have a lot of veteran presences on that team. Did that kind of like make you feel more comfortable having guys that have been there, done that? Like, I mean, gosh, Chris Davis, I mean, was Mark Trumbo floating around at that point too? So like, yeah, yeah. Trumbo, I, I, yeah. So Trumbo, I would sit next to him in the dugout and he would just kind of talk baseball. And I loved just listening to him because he was just so ahead of his time with everything. And he just saw stuff in a different light. And um, I, I mean, it's a shame that his, his body was not able to stay healthy, but, because he was an unbelievable talent and just super smart, smart baseball mind. And um, just some of the stuff he would say, he's just like, ah, here comes a slider. And I'm like, why do you say that? And, and he would like explain it to me. And I'm like, geez, dude, you're, you're way ahead of what's going on right now. So um, just to be able to hang out with him and, and just absorb everything that he was saying. And um, we also had Richard Blyer in the, in the bullpen and Michael Givens and, and all those guys. So I was able to kind of, I was, I was able to mess with them a little bit after I got a little bit comfortable. Uh, I remember I was in the bullpen one day and we were going out um, to the pin pregame and I gave Trumbo a hug and Blyer turned back to me and goes, did you just give Mark Trumbo a hug? And I was like, yeah, why? He goes, don't ever do that again. (laughs) So I was kind of like their like 
I, I just kind of like would jab. I was like their little brother. I would jab at them and, and they, they liked it enough. And thank God they did because I learned a lot from them. And um, so I was happy that Michael just signed back with the O's actually. So that's uh, they were, they were really, really cool to me. I, I did see that. That's such a cool thing that they brought him back. Do you still keep up and down with some of these guys that you, you play with in Baltimore? Like who are you most friendly with that you, you took away from your time there? Um, Evan Phillips, who's now with the Dodgers. Um, I keep in touch with a lot. Uh, keep in touch with uh, Brandon Klein, Tanner Scott. Um, I text Blyer every now and then. I just texted Givens today actually and tell him congratulations. So um, I try to keep up with them as much as possible. You guys know it's just life gets quick and um, you lose lose touch with a lot of them. But we were we were joking around saying that we should have a reunion here soon and, and get all that get all of us together. So, um, but yeah, I I still try to keep in touch with them as much as possible. I love that. Yeah, that there's some there's some great characters in there. Um, we've talked a lot about this with Brian before. It's just like having minor league options and getting called up and sent down, like. I think you you probably rode the Norfolk shuttle a time or two. Like, what was that experience like? And was that hard just like, you know, having the uncertainty of call up, sent down, call up, sent down, that kind of thing? My my first year, yeah, it was tough, um, especially I didn't really understand it. And my first time was after my my debut and I went five innings and gave up two runs against Tampa. And I, the next day I was optioned out. So I really had to understand like the – the business side of things, I, I needed to understand like the roster size and injuries and um, IL stints. And um, just because I had a, a good one doesn't mean I was going to stay up there, but I was up two weeks later and because of another injury. So um, that's when I truly had to like, just kind of take it all in. And then um, I, I understood that just as quick as I was gone, I was quick up. So um that's something that I, I kind of took into my own game was not to worry about what was going on up there, but just to kind of stay ready mentally and stay ready and for a call. And um, obviously 21 was like that too. I was DFA, I think two times that year. Um, two, that was three times. Cause after the season was over too. So, but uh, it was just, it's it's tough like mentally it's tough because you want to go up there you want to be able to be on the team and compete and and win and um my big thing in 21 was just i just wanted to be there and and win i didn't want to be on the teams that lost in baltimore i didn't want to have that um stigma around my name so for myself i i wanted to truly bring baltimore back and that's why i was happy for them last year is that they were able to do that um so it it's just exhausting after you get done with the season you look back on it you're just like you're like i'm glad to be home for a little bit yeah i mean that's you have to have the, the decompression time there especially you know going through the ups and downs of those orioles teams like you were on um i did want to ask did in norfolk did did you you threw to adley rutschman I'm, I'm assuming right yeah yeah i threw to adley he got called up i think i think it was halfway through the year he got called up with us uh big deal uh, there were some rumblings in the locker room when he, <laughs> he was on his way up and everyone was like, we're really getting them. So uh, unbelievable, dude. Um, work ethic is off the charts. Um, just truly like doesn't change who he is. Um, no matter what level he's at, he's going to, he's going to run up to you after the innings over with and, and put his arm around you and talk with you. Um, so I, that's something I respect with him a lot. Um, and he, he does a really good job of, of just kind of not letting the, the moment get to him and truly just staying true to himself. 
shame Richard Blyer isn't on these Orioles teams now. I'd love to see how he'd react to like an Adley after the inning hug. Oh, he, Rich, Rich will definitely say something, but Adley wouldn't care. He would still do it. <laughs> so I think him and Rich actually got along really well in spring training. Um, I think that was in 20. Cause yeah, that was in 20. Cause he uh, got, got called up. And he was not called up, but he was with us in big league spring training. So he was definitely rich. Rich likes to give people hard times and see where they're at. So uh, it was funny to watch them interact with one another. Just I don't even know why this popped in my head, but I remember when when Richard Blyer was on the Marlins and he got into an argument with the, with I guess it was like the umpire, but he was sitting in the dugout and he gave him the double bird. So mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know if that's, that sounds like a that Richard was over Blyer a check swing. Yeah, I remember that. That was funny. <laughs> I when I saw that, I was like, "That's rich." That's yep. <laughs> so he's a character, man. One of the, like one of the funniest guys I've got to play with. Yeah, that's that's so funny. Um. Real quick, real quick, going back to Adley though, did you notice a difference thrown to him as opposed to other catchers? Like, what do you think makes him so good at his job as a catcher? Uh, I think he cares. I, I, I don't think I know he cares. Um, he, he puts in the effort, he puts in the work, and I think that's the thing that I that I like as a pitcher throwing to is that I know that he's done everything to put himself in a position to to help us, um, and ultimately that's like that's what I like about catchers, and it was one of those things where. Um, he was able to block everything. He was, he was thrown. He was understanding what the game situation was and, and everything. So, um, he's wise beyond his ears. And I think that he's, he's definitely got a big league mentality. And I think he'll be a big leader for a long time. Absolutely. As an Orioles fan, it just, it just makes me feel good knowing that we have somebody like him on the staff, because like, I have to imagine playing with him is infectious, like, right. Cause like, it's everything. It's like the hugs after the innings. It's just, he's always got a smile. And, and like you said, you could tell he could, he puts in the work. So, um, I mean, that guy, I mean, that's, he must be one of the best like teammates and guys to be around too. Yeah. hundred percent. This goes in, he's got a plan each and every day and he's, he's executing the plan. And I think that that's a big league, big league mentality of truly understanding what he needs to do that day and, and going in there and executing it. I love that. All right. I just have a lot, a couple, you know, a few last Orioles things for you. Um, you, you know, you're in the Orioles system for as long as you were. Like, who are some guys that, like, you maybe play with in the minors that, like, maybe aren't household names or maybe haven't gotten called up yet, like, that Orioles fans should be excited about or, you know, you want to give some shine to? Uh, I don't know. That's kind of tough because a lot of guys gotten called up um, that I've played with. And last year I was there was a 21. So, um, but I like Stowers. Stowers is a very good bat, left-handed bat. Uh, I didn't get the chance to play with Vavra. Um, but I – the arms I like Bradish, uh, um, Gunner. Um, I think Gunner's going to be really good. Uh, Henderson. That's uh, who am I thinking of? Um, his name's blinking me right now. But it's the it's the top prospect. Um, he got hurt last year. Wasn't able to make. Oh, his uh, Grayson Rodriguez. Grayson. Sorry. Yeah. Love sorry, Grayson. Grayson. If you're listening, to but Grayson is. Um, <laughs> Grayson's the truth, man. I really like Grayson. Uh, so the, the arms are really, really exciting to be to be able to watch, and um, it's electric, every one of them. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that they're going to going to going to be able to get their opportunity up there. Did you play with Ryan Ripken? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, we're uh, he he's been on this podcast a bunch. We're all we're all buddies with him. That's what what was that? What was the Ryan Ripken experience like? He's that guy's the best. He's his character too, man. He he really kept it loose. Uh, came in every day and um, 
just had something for us all the time. So uh, I great teammate, great person um, off the field, just wanted to get everybody together and, and stay close. And obviously 140 games is a lot. So to be able to like get off the field and, and truly get together and enjoy life um, out of, outside of the stadium. So it, it was cool. It was uh, he was definitely a glue guy and um, kept us all together. I get, I get those vibes from, yeah, he's, and, and he's doing his own media thing now too, which is really, really cool. Um, yeah. all right. Uh, I just had a couple of quick last rapid fire questions to wrap up our interview. Thank you so much for coming on here, by the way. It, it, this no, has absolutely. been one of our favorite conversations by far. Absolutely. Um, so, all right. Which Orioles teammate would you most want to have your back in a fight? In a fight? <laughs> Tanner Scott. <laughs> Tanner Scott immediately. Fall Lake teammate, Tanner Scott. Yes. Sorry. Without a doubt. That's hilarious. <laughs> that's that's high praise. I mean, yeah, I mean, you play with guys like Chris Davis whose biceps are the size of people's legs. So that's 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 high praise for, for Tanner Scott, the hard thrower down there. Yeah, no offense to C D, but Tanner Scott, yeah, he's he's a wiry guy and he's he's pretty strong as well. So I've seen him in the <laughs> weight room throwing stuff around. Oh yeah. Uh, I remember there was a point, I think it was like in the Orioles bullpen where it just seemed like everybody had like super long, cool hair. Maybe it was like Ash Rojakowski and, uh, and Hunter Harvey, which just had like these cool mullets. Did you ever think about growing your hair out to, to kind of match that flow? No, no, I'm good. I'll, I'll leave that to those guys. Uh, yeah, we, we would give those guys crap all the time because Hunter and Wojo would get like mistaken on the road a couple of times. So (laughs) it was just funny to see that, but yeah. Every time they, every chance they got to, to take off their hat too, it would be off. So it was, it was <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I talked to Jeff Arnold, who's the, the Royals radio guy. He said that him and Ben McDonald were just sitting up there like, wow, that is, that is a lot of hair. That is just <laughs> both, both those guys double barrel. Um, of all the big league stadiums, we talked about your favorite minor league stadiums you've played in. What's your favorite big league stadium you've played in? Uh, Petco had a, had a close one in my heart. Cause that's home. Uh, but not only that, but it was loud. It was one of the louder stadiums I've ever played at. Um, and I couldn't imagine how loud it was during that NL, uh, NLDS, um, uh, games. Um, but also Yankee stadium. I liked Yankee stadium a lot too. Uh, one, because they had an indoor bullpen, which was nice. So you don't have to get yelled at the entire game. Um, but two, just being able to pitch in that stadium with those types of fans and, and the stigma that are wrapped around that place was, was something that you can forever hold on to and, and have plenty of stories with throughout your entire life. Really cool. Um, we've talked a lot about Cal State Fullerton. They've had some incredible alums in the big leagues, or they have some incredible alums in the big leagues. If you had to pick like a Mount Rushmore, like your top four of Cal Fullerton baseball players, who, who would be on there? You're going to get me in trouble with this one. Cots, Kotze, uh, Nevin, um, Wallach, um, Tim Wallach, and then um, I would say JT, uh, Justin Turner. Uh, those are pretty like Mount Rushmore guys. But there's been a ton, man. There's there's guys in there that that really like they all just do super like really good jobs of what they do, and they understand themselves really good. But I. There's plenty of them. I, Ricky Romero is another one that comes to mind. So, um, so it's there's there's a lot of them. 
Yeah, that's I, it, maybe that was a little unfair of me to put that uh, just a four because I was looking at the list of Fullerton baseball. It's like even like Matt Chapman. I was like, wait, he went there. Yeah, and I'm going with the alumni with this. One. Matt's up there, but I, I'm making yeah. sure that I, I I respect the guys that built the program first, and then and then <laughs> go to those guys. I, I didn't realize uh, I didn't realize Tim Ball went there too. Yeah, Tim was <clears throat> Tim was there. That's yeah. Chad's dad, Jay. Oh. <laughs> I was like that last Big name sounded familiar. Good big leaguer himself too, but yeah, it yeah. was uh, that's awesome. I thought you were giving Chad the nod at first, and then I was like, oh, that's Dad another one there too. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's just a ton of them. Mike Lorenzen too. Um, yeah, yeah. So Noe Ramirez, there's yep. there's just plenty of them out there. That's so cool. Uh, all right, last question is: What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Best piece of advice that I ever received. Um, don't let the game change who you are. Don't let the people in the box change who you are. Don't let anything else. Don't let someone tell you something that you can't do. Um, and, and don't let it dictate your mindset. Um, I think that's the big thing that I, I've taken is that before my debut, I got a text basically saying that was um, less explicit like that. So um, if someone took a big screen, swing off me like don't let them get comfortable if i have to go high and tight go high and tight um it's just when you get into the lines it's it's more about just being who you are as a pitcher and playing the game as opposed to trying to be like trying to like respect guys um you're going to earn respect with the way you pitch and the way you compete and then off the field that's when you that's when you start going back to like respecting who is been there veterans all that kind of stuff but when you cross those lines don't let the, don't let that change who you are like that dude this has been incredible this has been so great thank you so much for coming on yeah absolutely thanks for having me thomas thank you so much man i know i know jay was really looking forward to this one for the orioles and you know the padres i think got a really good pitching coach coming too so happy for you man congrats on, on the career and moving into coaching now, I'm sure you're going to do great things with that too, man. This has been awesome. Love talking to you. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. And before we get out of here, a special thank you to the band Stick Figure for allowing us to use today's intro and outro music. So